Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Well, as Charlie, our producer, just told you, this is Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and we've got another great show with our guest, Vasu Raja, the Chief Revenue Officer for American Airlines. First, let me have my trusty sidekick, Ben Baldanza, take the mic. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Hey, Chris. I'm really excited talking to Vasu today. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy the conversation. Let's cover off a few news items first, though, before we get to the main event. Get us started, please. Most certainly. Well, I'm not going to say I told you so, but maybe you can, Ben. BA ditched their idea for a new low-cost carrier, or maybe they put it on ice. Uh, You and I both gave this a big fat question mark, but what did you think about them blaming the pilots for why it was not going to happen? Well, when we talked about it and when part of that big fat question mark was, if the only way you get low costs is to put it on the backs of labor, that's not a good long-term strategy. And one of the things we said was airlines that have tried to do airlines within an airline by putting lower cost labor, specifically pilots and sometimes flight attendants and mechanics, but not really changing much else makes it really, really difficult to work. So it's not surprising to me that they scrapped the idea. And my guess is that they blamed the pilots because they had to blame someone and didn't want to blame themselves for what was at the beginning just a bad idea. (laughs) And that's unfortunate. That suggests, you know, sort of long-term acrimony between those the pilots and IAG, and that's really unfortunate because what you'd like to think is, well, we thought about this and thought the right way to have a low-cost airline is through really high productivity of all the assets rather than our pilots didn't want to take a cut in pay, so we didn't do it. Yeah, I agree with you. I I was just kind of disappointed, I guess, is a word we could use, but it's kind of like There was so much hair on the idea to begin with. Why are you looking for a scapegoat here? It just wasn't the right time, or we need to keep talking, or we're going to take a break in discussions. We still hope to get this done, but I'm not sure it accomplished anything by throwing darts at the pilot group that you're going to need for something else, if not for this. Yeah, it's just a bad sign when you want to use one of your major labor groups as a scapegoat for a strategic issue. That's just not the that's just not the right thing to do. I mean, uh, you know, I'm a New York Giants fan, and the New York Giants lost a game a couple of weeks ago in part because they had an offsides penalty on one of their offensive linemen at a key point in the game that allowed the other team to re-kick and make the field goal that they had just missed. And at the end of that game, the coach said. I'm not going to put it on that one guy. We had lots of reasons that we could have won that game and lots of things we did wrong. And he was unwilling to sort of blame that one guy who got that penalty. And that was good sort of practice, I think, for the way labor management relations should be too. There could be lots of reasons they decided to put this idea on ice and to just call out the pilots as the main reason just suggests a, a very sort of acerbic atmosphere there. Uh, A big ditto for me. So then in Washington last week, there was a congressional hearing about unruly passengers. The flight attendants made their case about why more needs to be done. And the FAA suggested that airlines need to do more to crack down. Delta said airlines should share names of bad behaving passengers and ban them across all carriers. I saw another idea that the FAA should be more aggressive in publishing the names and hometowns of passengers who are arrested or fined. Where do you think this goes, Ben? Well, it's fascinating, actually, and I'm actually sympathetic to Delta's idea to share the list. One of the things I've always found interesting 
when talking to customers in an airline is to try to put things in terms of their business and have them recognize the airlines as a business. And I think about in this case, if I owned a donut store and there was someone who was regularly stealing donuts from my store and one day he gets caught, I would think that other donut stores in the neighborhood might want to know that there's a person in the neighborhood who steals donuts. So look out for this guy, right? And when you put it in those terms, I think most people would say, well, yeah, that makes sense. So if someone misbehaves on an airplane and punches a flight attendant or causes a ruckus, why wouldn't the whole industry want to know? I think that makes sense. I think it keeps everyone safer. It keeps flight attendants safer. If you commit a felony in Texas and you move later to Illinois, you're still a felon, right? That's right. The, the consequences of our actions stay with us. So I actually like the idea of sharing the no-fly lists among the airlines. Now, the airline that gets Delta's list or their competitor's list can decide whether they actually put those people on their own no-fly list or not. They may just wholesale put them on or say, let's look case by case as to why they, why they did that. But I think it's good. The idea of publishing the names in hometowns, that sounds a little bit too far to me. That sort of you know, shaming people in that kind of way is not something that we usually do. I think fining them, saying you can't fly my airline anymore and I'm going to tell all my competitors that I'm not letting you fly me anymore. Those are all kinds of good things, I think, to get people to start behaving again. And mostly, Chris, I think that when business travel starts to return, and there's some sort of normality again, a lot of this is just going to go away. We had very few of these issues before COVID. A lot of these issues are related to mask mandates and people not willing to comply with those. When a lot of this stuff just goes away, which hopefully will be in the next year or so, my guess is this problem fades away too. So to put in long-term things like publishing the names of people and you know, publicly shaming them. I think that's too far. But sharing the list, I like that idea. See, I was kind of intrigued by the publishing the names thing. I mean, the local police conduct stings and pick up mostly a bunch of men uh, soliciting prostitution and they publish all the names and embarrass them. So when people used to write checks, we can all remember walking into the local diner or the local dry cleaner, and they'd have up on the wall all the people who wrote bad checks for everybody to see. So well, you're right about that. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm not sure that's exactly the answer, but clearly stepping up the information sharing would be a, a good first start. Well, TI Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed, which means enhanced operations and a true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. And Chris, Clear makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home-to-gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. And then, Ben, the Biden administration announced a rather significant relaxation of the rules for international inbound vaccinated passengers. LATAM reported a bookings increase of 350% the day after the announcement, and Air France KLM predicted a similar surge in transatlantic travel. I'm wondering, does this say more about the strength of the market or the weakness of the current demand? That's a, that's a great question. I think the 350% says more about the weakness of the current demand. I think that's a small number problem there. <laughs> but that said... I think this is really encouraging news. And I think allowing vaccinated passengers into the U.S. does make sense as long as that vaccine can be verified. And I'm sure that we'll do a good job of that. But that is sort of a predicate, I think, to getting transatlantic and, and trans-Pacific traffic ultimately back in play, I think. So I think it's great. And 
U.S. South America traffic as well, obviously, with LATAM. But I think it's great that this relaxation of rules is happening for vaccinated passengers. The best way to get everyone who can be vaccinated, vaccinated, I think, is to show just how normal life can be once you're vaccinated again. I agree. Again, we're not going to get into vaccine politics at the moment, but clearly the more you can do when you're vaccinated and the more life can be normalized because you're vaccinated, that just creates more and more incentives that you can't really manufacture with a $50 gift card or other kinds of incentives. I think it's getting back to normal. That's going to be what drives those people who are still reluctant to get vaccinated to get a shot. Airlines Confidential will be right back with our conversation with Vasu Raja, the Chief Revenue Officer at American Airlines. Don't go away. But first, remember that Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. Pratt & Whitney has the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. To learn more about their 95 years of innovation and how they power the future of flight, visit prattwhitney.com. Well, welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and we're very excited to bring in our guest, Vasu Raja, Chief Revenue Officer at American Airlines. Vasu, we like to let our guests introduce themselves and tell us about their background in the business and their current role. So why don't you give us the quick 411 on yourself? Hey, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Vasu. I am indeed the Chief Revenue Officer of American Airlines. Um, I've been with the company and in the industry for about 17 years through many, many great uh, highs and and, um, profound lows. I spent the entirety of my career at American Airlines, first at the company that was AMR, then through the merger, the, the modern one that's here now. But you know, through through all these many many years, what I always tell people is that the the most exciting thing about the airlines is not a, what is behind it, but what is in front of it. Um, and I think that's really really true for where we are right now, both as an industry and especially us as a company. So uh, maybe with that, Ben, uh, I, I'm happy to go in any direction you want. Fossey was chief revenue officer for the world's largest airline. You've got a lot of levers at your disposal. Tell us first how you think about the AA network, and maybe run through a quick SWOT analysis of your strengths, weaknesses opportunities and threats. Yeah, sure. Um, I I will maybe I'll do two cuts of it. Let me do the, the the cut of the American Airlines network, which is what we call its organic network, and the cut of its uh, of the American Airlines network, which is what we are increasingly offering to to customers. And a lot of this won't be great news compared to my other comments on earnings calls or, or things like that. But I'll try to put a little more color on it. You know, American Airlines, this modern company is. It's it's kind of a strange thing. It's, it's it's organic network is really strong. Like it has an immense level of, of of comprehensiveness in a lot of markets that are not big airline markets. If you look through most of the cities in North and South America, especially things that are sandwiched between the coasts and in the U.S., little cities in Mexico or um, name your country in South America, American Airlines has a huge draw. And in any which way you look at it, we we operate a lot of flights. We operate a lot of flights to a lot of markets. We operate a lot of flights at, at different times of day. Um, the penetration of our loyalty program is is, is really quite high. Short, we, we create a lot of value for for customers. We have a great product for them. Uh, the product being the network, and, and unsurprisingly, when you, when that that plays through in our financial results, you know, of course, when you create a lot of value for your customers, you're able to capture that and and deliver that to your investors. And those are the parts of our system where we have have a, almost. Um, outperformed almost even without thinking about it over the years. So much so, you know, a few years ago, we grew DFW to 900 flights a day, the, the largest it had ever been. It was the greatest single hub growth post-deregulation. It all happened in one summer. It was like 10, 12% capacity growth. When we put it together, we thought that our margins would deteriorate. They didn't. They expanded. Indeed, our, our unit revenues were two to three percent higher on marginal costs that actually fell because we scaled the expenses of the hub. However, uh, and this takes me to to the part where the organic American Airlines network is is a lot weaker for our customers. You couldn't see a difference in the 2019 PNL because while that was happening. The thing we were offering our customers on the West Coast, the Northeast, and even in a lot of major international markets and transatlantic and transpacific was frankly not as good as our competitors. And when you don't 
have a network that's as, as good as them, you one, customers tend not to fly you. Two, the way airlines have historically gone and, and solved for that is by offering deeper and deeper discounts to pricing, promotions, things like that, all of which are a means of going and trying to solve for the product efficiency of not having a really great network for the customer. But ultimately, you know, it, it's, it's like we say internally, everybody loves the JFK LA Transcon product that American Airlines offers. But if we can't get you to Atlanta or Nashville or Portland, it doesn't really matter. Like at some point, if you're flying us a lot, you choose not to go and fly the, the Transcon product. And so where that the, the thing that is the organic American Airlines network is weak is that, that we are just not as strong in those markets. And because of the infrastructure constraints, slots, gates, things like that, airspace, there's not an easy way for us to go and, and, and get big in any of those markets. Similarly true in, in, in Long Haul International. You know, it, the strength of our system, when we go stick another flight into anything, Chicago, Phoenix, DFW, Miami, and we fly it short hall, the marginal economics of it are amazing because what we do is we're able to go and fly into name your city, Birmingham or La Paz or whatever the case might be and offer a ton of connectivity. But in a lot of major international markets, especially long haulers to transatlantic, transpacific, really so much of the demand is not in you know small cities all across the U.S. 48 states. It's really concentrated in a few, in four or five large cities on the West Coast, maybe you know five or six large cities on the on the East Coast. And without a big base in um, New York and Boston and you know Seattle, San Francisco, L.A., places like that, we're just unable to go and 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 access that in quite the same way. And so it led to a world where we had you know we flew a big peaked international schedule in the summer, primarily for leisure travelers, and we tried to bury wide bodies in, in, in the winter. So that was a real real challenge for us. And so as we, much over the, the, the last year, you know, as nerve wracking as, as COVID was for us, you know, we, we saw it all the way through as a chance to really reset the airline. And I, I know a lot of people say that we, we took that as what I'll call almost like a spiritual quest for us, that we, we must come out of here with something where we have the very, very best product for our customers, that wherever our customers fly, we, that, that means that we need to have the most comprehensive network, the biggest depth of schedule, the most breadth of schedule, um, a loyalty program that, that um, makes it easy for them to fly us and, and get rewarded on us. And so we very consciously went and cultivated partnerships with Alaska Airlines on the West Coast, JetBlue in the Northeast. We're actively developing partnerships, really less and less with with long haul carriers, but really with short haul carriers that operate in Chile or Brazil or places like that that can not only provide endpoint connectivity for us, but also um, enable us to go and, and, and enhance the value that we provide customers in those geographies. So now as we look at it, I, I, would, I would do your SWOT analysis a lot differently. The strength of American Airlines is indeed its network. And that if you look at it, that what we can offer to our customers is um, the most comprehensive network in the Northeast, the West Coast, domestic U.S., South America, increasingly to markets such as, as London and across um, Europe. Across our, our, our very many partners, um, we're looking to do in India what we were unable to do in China, which is to offer, offer the customer really the, the most comprehensive network with nonstops from the U.S., connectivity in Doha and London, and, and continued evolution from there. So we think that the network is increasingly a strength for us. Uh, what we see the opportunities are, are first, we need to really be able to integrate our partnerships very, very well. And I'm spe- though speaking from American Airlines, I suspect any one of our partners, whether it's JetBlue or British Airways or, or Alaska Airlines would, would, would say a version of the same thing. But we need to make it so that a customer would willingly choose AA plus, for example, JetBlue over any of our competitors on a totally organic network. And the more and more we can do that, where they get their loyalty benefits, they get their corporate deal, they get all of that stuff, the more real the strength and product potency of this network is. So that's a huge opportunity for us. The other opportunity for us um, is to go and create value for customers that are not necessarily the old historical ways in which airlines have operated. That if you, if you think about the airlines, that from the time post deregulation on, airlines like had a congenitally flawed product. Like n- nobody offered real comprehensiveness outside of maybe a city here or there. And a lot of the different programs and policies that airlines have um, have really been trying to go and 
sell their product for less. And not necessarily about how you go and create value for the customer, but if you think about it, like think about any of the brands you really like, whether it's your technology device, your car, whatever it is, um, what they really try to do is go deliver value to the customer, and then they go and reflect that in the, in the value that the, that the company captures. Um, and so for us, we see a lot of opportunities to do things like that. For example, with our, our loyalty program, where historically, you know, loyalty programs have been market share-based programs. And even though they've been a evolving over time, they're still kind of market share based programs. But we think there's ways with the technology of today and the comprehensiveness of our network that we can do things for customers where they indeed find it easier and easier to to fly us, to fly us and, and um, sell themselves up and a higher value added services for them, all of which go and create financial value for American Airlines. So we think that's a real opportunity. And the last thing I'll say, and I'll stop my really, really long monologue here, guys, is in terms of the threats to it, I've often said this, that the greatest threat American ha- Airlines has is one airline, and that's American Airlines. We are just in a place where we just have to do it and deliver. That was an absolutely fantastic summary, Vasu. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Now, what do you say to those who say American is losing its mojo in Miami and its long-held position in Latin America with the loss of LATAM? And as part of that, how does the Miami airport strategy to attract more low-cost carriers impact how you think about that airport in your network? Uh, that's a great question, Ben. You know, it, it's kind of funny. Um, w- one of our airport leaders says that if you if you go back to to the long history of Miami, I think there's been something like 90 airlines that have come and gone from Miami, but there's still only one that runs a hub there, and that's American Airlines. And, and indeed, that's something which we intend to continue to grow. And through the pandemic, actually, probably like no part of our system, you know, ha- has really shined quite the way unexpectedly shined, like maybe outperformed our expectations in the way that Miami has, the close second to it probably being uh, Phoenix. Uh, And I say that because you know, in Miami, it is, you're exactly right. It's an airport where there is space for people. People have been entering in Miami airport. And, and, and indeed, people who were traditionally, who favored the lower cost economics of Fort Lauderdale or other of the South Florida airports have been coming in more and more. And for us, you know, our, our simple thing is we should always have the most competitive product in, in any marketplace in which we operate. You know, because international really wasn't going, we based a lot of our wide body flying into Miami and we weren't quite sure where it would go. But we wanted to make sure that, you know, we had the, the greatest number of seats in Miami, L.A. If a customer is flying Miami, L.A., we want that to be on American Airlines. And what really blew our minds about the whole thing is that we did indeed find that more customers were flying us. What we were surprised to find is the manner in which they were flying us, that as we deployed more wide bodies into Miami, you know, New York, Miami, LA, Miami, Miami to Columbia, um, almost all of these markets turned from narrow body flights to, to almost exclusively wide body flights. And, you know, as, as you guys will know with your background, you know, when you fly the wide bodies in domestic, it's a, you know, it's like having a, um, a marathon athlete run a, run a sprint. It, it just, it, it, it stresses the the airframe a ton. It, it it drives unit costs, and so we were worried about it because you know, we're operating at let's call it seventy five percent of historical wide body utilization. But as we saw everyone's competitive results roll in, yeah, you know, we were producing. 250, 300% of what industry revenues were when they were going and flying a wide body and international. But also what we were seeing is that customers would just find themselves onto onto the airplane and customers were willing to actually go and um, pay us more for the, the full flat beds in business class. So much so that we even started doing things where we actually stopped competing on price, um, which, you know, again, in, in the, the, the history of airlines is, is Whenever that's the case, people start scratching their heads, but customers wanted to be able to go and have a full flat business class product in Miami, LA, or even New York to Miami and things like that. And so we have been really encouraged by that. And so as we see the future of Miami, um, it is to continue to go and, and upgauge the hub first and foremost. And and there's probably a lot of creative ways to do it. The easiest of which is is continuing to do what we do, which is have 321s and 737s there. The bigger part of which is, you know, we're looking at any number of schemes where maybe more wide bodies go fly in short haul out of Miami. Two, that we continue to go and, and bolster the connectivity of the hub, you know. 
it's little known amongst a lot of U.S.-based customers, but our what we call our MCLA network, Mexico, Caribbean, Latin America, is actually bigger now. We're, we're, we are 20% larger now this fall than what we were at any point in time in the long history of American Airlines there. But what we've done is we've actually really consciously evolved it for a South American-based customer. You know, it's something like 60 to 65% of our customers on our, on our um, flights to MCLA are actually originating outside of the US. Uh, and so the more and more we, we grow that, the more unique value we create, the more connectivity we have in, in, in domestic, the more, more value we create. And then the, the third thing that we're really, really keen to do is across, you know, really through our, our very many partnerships in South America, Goal, JetSmart, and their continued growth, we can now do things with our um, loyalty program and commercial programs there that you know, we, we have a level of network comprehensiveness there that nobody has anywhere in the world, at least not outside of, of a few carriers in, in North America. And so um, we think there's a lot of ways to go and you know create new fair products, new loyalty constructs, expand our co-brand card down there, all of which is beneficial to the growth of the Miami hub. And so ultimately, you know, people are going to come into any market that's there. For us, it's just we, you know, what we're struck with is no matter how people may come into Miami, it doesn't change the fundamental growth economics for, for us. Like it, it gets better and better to grow it. And indeed, strangely for us and the, the unique structure of how Miami works, actually, the more people who enter Miami, the more it lowers our costs in Miami too, strangely making us more and more profitable. So that's a really advantage thing for us. And then the last thing I will say, which is like really far, far to the right of the decimal, but but you know, it, airline enthusiasts will appreciate it, is that in order to go really run a connecting hub in Miami, the way in which you need to design your bank structure consumes a lot of airplane time and a lot of human resources too. You need to have multiple waves in order to be able to connect the Caribbean in the morning, domestic through the day, transatlantic in an afternoon, long haul South America late at night, and all of that um, spans a range of airplanes that go from 50 seats big to 350 seats big. So it is a very asset-intensive problem to go truly build a big hub in Miami. And you know, uh, others may endeavor to do so, but whatever they may do, American Airlines is still going to be big. Yeah, that's a fascinating point you just made about Miami. As I'm in there a lot for my my other job, but. Now that you say that, depending on the time of day when you're there, it is a different airport. Absolutely right. It's absolutely right. We, we used to have an airport leader there that used to say that that depending on the time of day, it is it's like every different airport at once. Like for Charlotte, Charlotte is always a connecting airport. From bank one to bank nine, we you know eighty percent of the people are connecting. The head houses are are never as full as what you see behind. The, the complex. But in Miami, there'll be times a day where it is entirely full at the head house with local customers and they're checking bags. Other times it's connections and other times it's international and FIS can't be big enough. So it is everything all at once, all through the day. Well, that was fantastic. Your discussion about Miami and going even further in terms of partnerships, how are you thinking about alliances and how does one world factor into how you recover in the long haul international travel market that's taken such a beating during COVID? Uh, that's a, a great question, Ben. And, and indeed, we, we actually think a lot about our partnerships because you know, as we look back on whatever 25, 30-ish years of, of the One World Alliance, you know, these partnerships have been great great survival tools of the airline but but a lot of our focus has changed is how do we go and create a like a, a a customer value add through these things right because it is true like the, the reality is the airline can't go and operate in every place in which it in, in which it wishes to operate, whether it doesn't have access to slots or route authorities, or um, it's just impractical to think that we're going to go and build a huge connecting hub in Guangzhou or something like that. There's a lot of, of 
practicality to them. But the code that has really never been cracked is how do you make it so that it's really efficient to the customer? You know, as Don Casey, our our, our old head of RM uh, and sales used to say, like, we can't ever ask the customer to solve our problems for us. And that, that's a really aspirational statement, but one that we're we are working towards because, you know, as we see it, um, and this will probably register with a lot of your, your, your listeners, that we have a great partnership with British Airways. It's one that we, we treasure very much. Um, they do too. But our flagship route, Kennedy Heathrow, is one where, you know, we, we've historically not operated it in the same terminal. There have been a lot of different complications where you can't just switch from one flight to the next. If you book a business class seat on one, you get a seat assignment on the other, you don't. So, and if you're if you're actually connecting from one to the other, you can't get a, a on a, on, a, on a full business class ticket. You can't actually get a seat assignment for the for the full journey. And while that's been great for us, as we see it, it's we've probably underdelivered on its its customer promise, and therefore underdelivered on the value potential that it means for us. Like if you think about it in our own. In our own system, if you fly from LaGuardia to DFW, you can switch from one flight to the other all day long, You know, especially if you're buying a full fare ticket or things like that. We should make it as easy as possible for, for you to, to go and do business with us. And so that's, that is how we're thinking about the, these alliances. Just We've got to get to a world where it's easy for customers to, to do business with us and that indeed they would willingly choose doing business with us. And you know, fortunately, that's a, it's a pretty opportunity-rich environment. I mean... It, like pick on on the New York to Heathrow corridor. You know, there's a lot that we're doing. To you know, AA is operating at a T5 in London now. Um, over time, British Airways will come into our T8 at Kennedy. Increasingly, we're we're working on a number of um, technologies, policies, things like that to make it easy so that if if a customer is going to buy one carrier, they can go and and their meeting changes, their plans change, things like that. They can move to the other carrier's flight, and it's not it's as simple and um, as effective as if they were moving from one LaGuardia DFW flight to another. And so, so we're, we see that very much. And indeed, we, we further, I would add that we increasingly see the value of the global alliance. We see the value of the global alliance as being first a technology integrator, um, what, one that has real practical purposes for American Airlines, because we have so many partners all through the world. And we are typically the largest partner that any of those partners have. So being able to have an alliance that can go and create some standardization around how different carriers integrate has a lot of, of practical value. But also done right, it has a lot of, of um, consumer value in that a consumer should know that if you book on the One World Alliance, it means certain things. You can get a seat assignment all the way through. You can switch from one flight to another. Your corporate discount will price, whatever it might mean. It's probably a travesty that in so many years of doing these alliances, we can't say that as um, as categorically as we can in our wholly organic network, but we need to get there. So we're spending a lot of time and mental energy ensuring that happens. Um, probably the, the places where we that, that has progressed the most has really been with um, probably the three or four carriers, Alaska, JetBlue, Goal, uh, and Qatar. Uh, Qatar Airways in that that all of those carriers, um, much like us, have been fl- simply just flying through the pandemic, and so we've we've focused on that a lot. And so there's a lot of things where, um, you know, you, you can get upgrade if you fly from Austin, Seattle, on Alaska Airlines, and you're an executive platinum, our, our highest tier of loyalty on on American Airlines. You can be upgraded on that flight with the same level of priority and 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 efficiency as you can if you were if it was an American Airlines operated flight. Unsurprisingly, since we've done that, we've seen our market share in Austin grow um, and grow amongst the most valuable customers. And indeed, being able to do those things compelled us to go and fly things like Austin to Nashville and and, and other things. So we, we see the alliances and, and where it goes is if we can really deliver for the customer, it can unlock a lot of, of value for them and unlock a lot of potential for, for us, like financial potential and growth potential for the airlines. That's fantastic. And you talked in the strengths and weaknesses argument about the strength of Americans Network. And it seems like the alliances in one world really supercharge that. So that's really awesome. You're also celebrating Advantage's 40th anniversary. So where does this loyalty program and loyalty programs in general go from here? And explain to listeners, please, about automatically extending top tier benefits for another year. We've had a couple listener questions on that point. 
Yeah. Um, look, talking about our, our loyalty program is probably my single favorite thing to do. So as long as my answers have been like this one, I could spend an, an hour on Ben, but but I'll, <laughs> I'll 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 try to I'll try to moderate my my enthusiasm. That you know we we see these loyal the, the loyalty program as a massive vehicle to deliver value to customers and capture it to, to the airlines and all the more so because in you know if, if you think about about the the core of the airlines business model it, it has it ha- like it, um, innate to it is a, is a really difficult customer choice right no matter whether you're a, a full service network airline a ultra low cost airline anything at all the most constrained thing in an airline is the seat and for the most part, airlines have, have evolved to a world where even in the weakest day of the weakest month, airlines fly somewhere between 80 and 85% full in normal times. Let's, let's, let's just um, take COVID out of it. So what that means is that no matter what airline you have, low cost, ultra low cost, full service, whatever it is, anytime you are offering a seat to one customer, you're not offering the seat to another customer. And the, the, old time question that evolved through revenue management departments and things like that is who gets the seat. Um, and historically, airlines have approached it in the most transactional possible way, right? That I have a seat. I, I forecast that my my next best alternative is to sell it for 100 bucks or 20 bucks or 2000 bucks. And so if somebody's going to pay me anything more than that, I'll sell it to them. That That is like the, the most poor man's explanation of, of revenue management. But then on top of that, we, we because airlines had not had like real products that could create value for customers like the, because the networks were not comprehensive you know maybe one operated out of D- Dallas Fort Worth another one out of Reno whatever the case might be then everything became about all right how do i go and create market share so if i don't have um, I'm, I'm really small in JFK to San Francisco. I'm really big in DFW to San Francisco. I'm going to go, in order to go and, and um, generate more market share, I'm going to go create a program that incentivizes you the more time you fly me out of San Francisco. Well, great. And that might have worked for, for the way the airlines were 80 years ago, but it doesn't necessarily work for where at least we see the airline today. And that Today, you know, that's a, a perfectly nice thing to go and reward. But what we really want to be able to go and do is there's people who, who go out there and fly us. Um, and when, let's say, a basic economy fare is available, they will go buy themselves up into a main cabin fare because they want to check a bag and they want to earn miles and things like that. Well, when people are engaging in those kinds of behaviors, they're basically telling us that, look, even though you're willing to sell the seat at 100 bucks, I want to pay something more. Like, give me something more for it. And so we want to be able to reward that that behavior by actually creating more benefits for the customer, make it easy for them to earn status, reward them throughout the course of their journey. And also when they're engaging in those behaviors, make it easy for them to go and redeem miles, not just on seat inventory, but on whatever it might be, ancillaries, things like that, because that's really, really like value added behavior for for the airline and something that we want to go and 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 encourage. But similarly too, looked through that lens that that so many we could unlock a lot of benefits in, in the airline for people who are engaging in behaviors that um, aren't necessarily about going and getting a point of market share, but people who actually want to go and and pay more for the product or be fly the network more or do whatever the case might be. So we're looking at that at that a lot. As we see it, the the loyalty program is a huge vehicle because in the loyalty program, so much of what we do does not involve the same fixed economics of the airline, but a set of variable economics, right? If you know you're you're selling a mile at one rate, but the cost of the airline is a different rate, and so as long as those two things hold, there can be a lot of ways that you create value for customers. So we see that first and foremost by like really more deeply understanding. Um, who our customers are by making it easy, like um, ensuring that they earn miles and status for behaviors that that are most engaged people are earning miles and status. And it's not a thing that we just simply give away lightly or cheapen for people. Two, we want to make sure that our benefits program is a, is a rich and rewarding one, not just across American Airlines, but part of having all of these partnerships is that it should be easy for somebody to, to, um, to burn miles. And indeed, we have plenty of people who travel a ton on us, spend a ton on the credit card, and all they want is to be able to redeem for a lifetime vacation to Australia. We need to make it easy for them to be able to do it, and we need to think about their lifetime value and not their transactional value, as airlines historically have. Um, and the third thing is really maximizing the the 
the value of our currency to our partners. You know, we have so many people, whether it's City, Barclays, you know, any number of of of, um, of other smaller partners out there who really want to have access to the currency so that they can go and create value for customers. And so there's a lot of opportunity to be a lot more strategic with that and and create growth for those partners and, and growth for us as well. So we see it doing a lot of that. And then your question about extending status. Um, yes, we did extend status because it, it is such a strange time right now. And as, you know, as the recovery sort of meanders here, a lot of customers just don't know if, if you can't come back to the office, most companies aren't letting you travel. And then we have other, you know, professional services companies who are back in the office, but the clients won't let them come and visit. And so we don't want the strangeness of COVID to be borne out on their their status. But as we start going into 2022, that's when, uh, you know, I think we'll, you know, you'll start seeing some some different things from us. You know, we've learned a lot through this. What, one last thing I'll, I'll mention, and then I'll shut up about the program is, you know, I'll never forget, I, I, I had a neighbor who was an EP come to me and say, you know, I'm really freaked out. I'm not going to qualify this year. But if I'm to be honest with you, I don't know how I qualify any year. I just fly so much. I'm on an airplane three to four times a week. And because of that, I end up qualifying. And I've just never worried about it. But now the person who books my travel is telling me that I'm not going to qualify. And I, I, I just don't know how to do it. And one of the things we've realized through through COVID is, you know, the, the program, it, like how people qualify has become so opaque that in a way, people who simply, you know, like we've made it difficult for people who want to go and fly us more and pay us more, which is really kind of bizarre to think about. So we're looking at a lot of different ways where we can simplify it so that, that you know, the, let's call it the middle 80% of our elites who actually fly a lot and want to be engaged and use our product can can understand like in really simple terms without any kind of advanced like analytical degree, this is what I need to do in order to go be a good customer. And I want to go and do that. And we want to make it as easy as possible for them to be a good customer with us. So I'll, I'll stop there, but I could, I, could, I could go for days on this one, Ben. <laughs> well, maybe you can come to my class sometime at George Mason University, and I'll I'll just hand over the loyalty class to you. Uh, oh, hey, I, I'd love to. You, you, you and I would be very destructive that day. That'd be a lot of fun. More with our conversation with Vasu Raja in just a moment. And I'm sure that the team at Seabury Capital Group is listening in. Seabury is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. We're back with more of our conversation with Vasu Raja. Uh, Vasu, we talked a lot about business travel and the prospects of business travel on the show. Uh, what are you hearing from corporate accounts about the return of business travel? Uh, yeah, well, it's interesting. We are hearing more and more corporate travelers who are are keen to come back, more corporate travel managers who are who are keen to come back, and indeed more corporations that are planning to 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 come back. But really, so much of it is contingent on on return to office. You know, as we progressed through um, through the year, we kind of got to a place where, by let's call it the July August period, our business revenues were about fifty percent recovered. Like revenues from customers whose trip purpose was was business was um, at fifty percent of the level it was at in, in twenty nineteen, and we had kind of anticipated that when most major corporations were coming back around after Labor Day or October 1st, that that would start to, to inch back up and, and we would get to a place where, where corporate revenues are, well, it's, I won't call it normal, but a, a lot more like 2019. Let's call it 80, 90% of 2019 by the first quarter. Now, um, so many companies, especially so many of the, of the largest corporations that we have, have delayed their returns to office until January that we're increasingly looking out and thinking that it's pretty likely that that the the recovery that we had kind of anticipated in Q4 probably gets pushed into into um, Q1 a little bit. But that said, as more corporations have fully vaccinated travelers and have either vaccine or heavy testing requirements, 
there is going to be a big, big push to come back and come back onto the road. Um, the other thing that we've been more recently encouraged by is when there's a path for for foreign nationals to to enter the U.S., there's going to be a big groundswell in, in demand. And so, um, and until pretty recently, we were we were probably quite bearish on what the slope of an of a long haul international recovery looks like. Probably all, all the more so bearish because between us and British Airways, we have, you know let's call it 50, 70 long haul flights out of London Heathrow to the US, much of which rests on business demand and so much of which rests on UK originating business demand. But now we're starting to anticipate that indeed this, this recovery among business travel could happen in Q1, probably come back pretty quickly, and it won't be just relegated to, to domestic business travel, but indeed long haul, especially that, that high frequency transatlantic stuff could come back pretty quickly too. Earlier, uh, you talked about JetBlue and and the prospects for that and the opportunities for that for American. Um, you got kind of thrown a curveball last week with DOJ saying they're going to file a lawsuit or they did file a lawsuit uh, to block the transaction. Can you share any preview of how you intend to win this case and move forward? Well, look for, for us. It's I mean it's pretty simple, and I think that 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 Doug and Robin um, said it well in comments and interviews. It's just um, for us to deliver the maximum value to the customer. You know, the, the, the whole point of this partnership is that neither AA nor JetBlue can can really deliver a meaningful amount of value to the customer, and therefore we're not really competing. Indeed, the the one and number one and number two airlines in New York City um, don't have to work too hard to be the number one and number two airlines. I mean, certainly American Airlines has seen it that you know. Over the years, those two have had such a dominant position there. Um, the, any route we fly, they fly three times. Anything we go do to an approach a corporate corporate account, they can go do to an approach a corporate account. But they can go leverage parts of their 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 New York and Boston network that that we can't. Similarly, e- even in Boston, though we can fly a little bit more. I mean, even just to be able to go and and qualify for gates and things like that is challenging. And and those two, the customer pool of Boston and New York, there's so much um, financial services and things like that, that um, there's such related customer pools for us. So um, for us, we see it really simply. The, The more value we create for the customers, the more it brings real competition to the marketplace already and in not very much time, you're seeing that happen. You know, American Airlines has started more long haul wide body flights in the last five months than we did in the last five, if not the last 10 years. And increasingly like that, the long haulers we have out of New York are probably some of the most promising that we've got. It's especially eye popping because it's only been about three weeks or so since we've had connecting code with JetBlue. But in many routes that we've got there, you know, I'll never forget one of our, our revenue management guys came to me once and was like, you know, I didn't even realize that like there could be additional demand out there in places like New York to Miami, because we always flew that stuff 90% full. Um, New York to Islands, you know, New York to Tel Aviv, you know, which is is looking and profiling like one of our best best of our three flights to to Israel, a big chunk of it is simply JetBlue.com acting as an as an additional sales channel for us. Um, so the the value of it's been striking and you know unsurprisingly we, we, we keep integrating. You know, we have we're doing things with the loyalty programs. We have JetBlue coming into LaGuardia. American Airlines is taking the 50 seat jet entirely out of New York um, and Boston. You know, A is growing in Boston again. So it, there's just so much to like about it. So as we see it, we just keep following the customer value because when there's customer value, there's benefits to to American Airlines and JetBlue, and you know, there's real competition for the the big carriers there. And what's not to like about that? It'll be nice to have three strong competitors in New York, Vasu, for sure. No kidding. Well, finally, we've got a good listener base of airline geeks who want to get into the airline business someday in management, maybe, or in operations. Why do you love the airline business? And what's your best advice for someone who wants to get a job in the airline business on the management side? Oh, that's a that's a very interesting question. Um, look, I, I will say this, and, and given everything I've said here, it's going to sound odd, but like... Um, I, I don't consider myself an, an airline geek. Like I, I didn't, I didn't spend time as a kid trying to design airline schedules. And honestly, um, if, if you gave me one of those tests where you showed pictures of airplanes, I would like my, my results would be embarrassingly low performing. <laughs> but what I love about the the business is, uh, look, I, I, I like being able to really um, 
win as a team and have like real challenges. You know, pr- prior to being in the airlines, I was a teacher in Baltimore City Schools, and I loved that job too. So that gives you a sense for for my wiring. But in an airline done right, it is a lot of people pulling together to, to serve a purpose higher than themselves. And when it works, there is nothing greater than it. Um, it's like being on a on a sports team that wins, like 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 playing in a band that's really effective. It's just you know when when things are happening and they're happening well, there is there is no greater feeling to be had. But getting to that place is not easy. It is intellectually complex. It is socially complex. But it is powerful when it happens, uh, and so that's a really exciting thing. And look, and I and I would also say to that to anybody who is not an airline geek, to strongly for, first it, that may not be very much of your audience base, but but even still, there's probably some out there. But strongly consider it because th- there are so few places whether you whether you're going to be working on the line, flying an airplane, um, working in management, whatever it is, there are so few companies left in in probably in in the, the the whole ecosystem where you can come in work hard really contribute to a team and see you know and see the world change in some ways um, and that's a really exciting thing but then for those who are are really excited to be at an airline um, what I would say is just get into it it doesn't like I talk to a lot of people and they really really want to work in network planning and they're they're waiting to go and and work in network planning by any which way. Well, look the you know if there's a handful of airlines if you're only willing to work in the U.S. and let's call it nine airlines or ten airlines that are out there, my guess is the the entire volume of network planners that are there that may not be 400 or 500 people. That's, which isn't isn't a, a a ton, right? Given how big these businesses are, um, and I, I suspect, I mean, it's probably a lot smaller. Maybe the two big guys are are big and bloated, but the rest of us are pretty lean. Um, so it's really hard if you're waiting on that. But just come to the airline, whatever it is. Um, certainly for us, one of the things that we do whenever we look at at the hardcore airline functions like revenue management or network planning is, if people have worked somewhere in the airline, that's an instant. That's something that instantly attracts us to them. Whether they're they're throwing bags on the ramp somewhere, um, whether they're they're flying a line, whatever it might be. So, just find your way in because once you find your way in, airlines are all notorious for for being able to create a ton of opportunities. We certainly are. So, I would say there's, there's probably no job that's a bad job. And and if people are interested, you know, you know, certainly reach out. Like a lot of people reach out to me, and I connect them with people. And you'd be surprised the number of people who um, reach out to somebody who you know, they wouldn't otherwise reach out to and end up working at American Airlines. Well, Vasu, this has been great uh, on behalf of the two of us as American Airlines alums. Uh, we've enjoyed this conversation a lot, kind of hearing where you're taking the airline. I think I told you when I reached out initially to get you on the show that we were actually getting requests uh, for you to to go out and get Vasu. He's a great interview. So you certainly didn't let anyone down and uh, we appreciate you joining us and uh, hope our listeners enjoy this as well. Hey, thanks, Chris. It was super great to be with you guys and, and um, I'm happy to help in any way I can. Thanks for what you guys do and thanks for having me on the show. I'm sure we're getting a lot of feedback on this and uh, we really appreciate you all doing this. And Vasu, thank you so much for your candor and your openness and willingness to speak to all our listeners this way. Happy to do so. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Well, Vasu certainly didn't let us down as far as being interesting, insightful, and quotable. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Now it's time for your questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, let's start with both a comment and a question from Arun in Dallas. Hey, guys. First, I had a comment, then a question from last week's episode, and the Delta Flyer upset about the automatic continuation of benefits. 
American has done somewhat of the same thing. They are offering you to keep status if you spend $2,000 on flights from September 1st through December 31st or spend $15,000 on the credit card. However, from what I've heard through the forums, the system will know if you have used that, quote, challenge or have actually qualified as usual. So then upgrades will be processed first for those who actually made status by flying within the tier before the others. I think that is partial compensation to those who were true road warriors. Uh, Very AA-like, pretty smart there. So second, here's the question. I have a question about Goal versus LATAM and the AA Alliance. While Goal is an LCC, I've heard that LATAM's South American hard soft product is about the same as an LCC. Is this true? And if so, it sounds like American will be fine with Goal and to a lesser extent, JetSmart. Well, this is a great comments and question, Arun. I want to address your comment first. I think AA doing this, saying that they're going to know who qualified because they met the challenge versus those who really flew and sort accordingly, is a bit sneaky, to be honest. I like the fact that they are doing more for the people who qualified in the normal way. But I think it should be more transparent. Maybe they should put them in a higher status or call them something. And the reason I'm saying that is if my ticket says I'm a gold level or whatever level I qualified for or met by the challenge, I would expect as a customer that I get all the benefits of that and not that I'm really a second-class citizen within that level. I might be fine knowing that somebody else who flew more is a higher level than me, though. So it seems to me a little sneaky, and maybe that's what you meant by (laughs) AA-like. But I'm going to jump in there, though. I mean, aren't the algorithms set so that all platinums aren't created equal? It's going to depend on how much of a fare you're flying on and your mileage you earned that year, whatever else. So they're, they're kind of sorting through and and ranking everyone on a standby list or an upgrade list based on their value. So is this this just another form of that? Yeah, that that makes sense, I guess. And and there there's always fewer seats than there are people, especially if you're in Dallas for American, right? Or Charlotte. And so it does make sense that they have to do that sorting. I would just think that they should be transparent and maybe they have been that if you use a challenge to get a status that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get, that it should be clear to you that maybe in terms of baggage policy and access to lounge or not and bonus miles and things like that, you're going to be treated okay. But when it comes to sorting, you're not on quite as high a rung a ladder as the people who've flown a lot. That's all I'm saying. That's fair. It shouldn't be gossip on the forums. It should be spelled out. So, Yeah, I think that's right. And so on LATAM, the reality is the difference between an airline like JetSmart and Goal and American even just isn't that big a difference if you're sitting in a coach seat. Now, what may be different is the level of unbundling, whether you get a free check bag or you have to pay for a check bag and maybe whether your seat reclines or doesn't recline or something like that. But I think American doing the investment in goal and working with JetSmart and maybe Viva Columbia, as we learned a few weeks ago, um, I think those are all going to be fine partners for American. And people who are traveling won't notice a big difference in the product. I remember many years ago when I worked for American, flying on what was then Lon Chile, which ultimately is now LATAM. And coming back and talking to the marketing people about just how nice that airline was in coach in terms of the comfort of the seat and the kind of meal they served and how that was, I thought was better than the meal American was serving on similar length flights and things like that. So I think the product in Latin America just has a different kind of mindset to it when you're actually in the airplane. And the differences are more about the policies when you buy the ticket. So in that sense, I think a customer who buys an AA code share and ends up on a JetSmart or Goal airplane isn't going to be really disappointed when they get in the seat. Yeah, I agree. And even with European partners, I mean, United hands off to Lufthansa, but 
when you're flying within Europe on a lot of Lufthansa aircraft, the business class or first class seat is pretty much the coach section or the economy section. They just don't put someone in the middle seat. So there isn't always that much of a great product within the continent, whether it be Latin America or Europe or whatever the market is. So I think that's probably some of the same thing, what you're just talking about. And then Ben, this is from Daniel in Bloomington, Indiana. And I know you'll have the answer to this one because it's somewhat commonplace in the Caribbean and Latin America where Spirit used to fly or Spirit does fly and used to work. Greetings, Ben and Chris. For the past two weeks, I've been traveling in Central America and I was surprised by how some airports in the region require arrival or departure taxes to be paid in cash by the passenger rather than including them in the cost of an airline ticket. I would have assumed that it would be cheaper and more transparent for the airline to remit this money to local authorities rather than local governments having to pay for extra staff and infrastructure to collect the money by hand. Who ultimately benefits from collecting taxes and cash at the airport instead of including them in the ticket price? Do airlines really care whether they are responsible for collecting taxes from their passengers? And is this something an airline would consider when they enter a new market? Great question, Daniel. And what you say is exactly right. There are some airports that require you pay the tax in cash before you leave and others that put it in the ticket. And I really think this is an older policy that over time we'll see more and more going into the ticket price. But there's a couple things going on here. Some of these countries want the hard currency to stay in the country. So they collect the cash there and don't have to wait the maybe 30 or 60 days for the airline to send them that cash. Also, depending on where the customer is going, there may be a different tax applied. And that doesn't mean that they couldn't put it in the ticket. But for many of these airports, what people get paid to work there is just a very different rate than the way we think of those jobs in the U.S. So throwing people at problems is a common way to solve problems in the Caribbean and Central America because it's a relatively inexpensive way to solve the problem. And I think what they want to do is they want to ensure they get the money They know that they have almost no recourse to the customer once they leave the country to ever get it back from them. And then rather than wait for the natural processes of the airline to pay and then potentially have some disputes of, you know, this is what the person owes or that what the person owes, they say, let me just collect the cash right while I'm here. And I know I have the cash and I get the hard currency that stays in the country. And I really think it's an old policy that is slowly going away. But in some countries, they just, it's inertia to change something like that. And I really think that's what's driving it. Chris, have, uh, have I missed something big here? No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, you know, the issue is going to be as we as a society continue to move to a cashless system, are they going to be able to adapt quickly enough? I mean, I often don't have cash. I still tell my kids, you know, have some cash in your wallet and they look at me like I'm a Martian. But, um, (laughs) you know, at some point, the reality of how we pay for things is going to overwhelm these smaller countries or smaller airports where they're still operating like this. Well, this just in, the Apex IFSA Passenger Experience Conference in Long Beach has been moved to November 30th to December 2nd. Ben and I still hope to be there, and that gives you plenty of time to make your own plans to attend. Visit expo.apex.aero, A-E-R-O. And Pratt & Whitney is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Well, Chris... This finer wine is from Jason in Fairlawn, New Jersey, and he's got a complaint about Frontier. I bought a flight to Texas. Due to my being sick, I could not make the flight. 
I gave them a call three weeks later to get a refund or a flight credit, and I was denied. They told me I was a no-show for the flight, and I was not entitled to any refund. They are thieves. They took my $337. In fact, that should be their name, Thieves Airline. <laughs> Chris Finer Wine from Jason. Thieves Airline. Hmm. I think some people think that name's been already used before, so... Jason, I'm sorry, unless you were in a coma on the day of your flight and couldn't call for three weeks, and I hope you weren't, this is a big fat whine. You got to call ahead of time to cancel the reservation and alert the airline so they can resell it and also be in compliance with uh, the contracted carriage. So this clearly wasn't a priority to you, and it showed by calling three weeks late. So this is a big whine, and I think you should withdraw your thieves airline accusation. Well, you know, Chris, when I read this, I actually had this thought in my head, which is just a complete made up thing, right? It's not reality, <laughs> but I thought that like Jason like missed his flight. And a couple of weeks later was like having drinks with buddies of like, you know, man, I missed that flight. I lost $337. And they sort of on a lark said, hey, why don't you call him and see if you can still get a refund? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, you know, the Alaska Tales with the Eskimo is like, you know, put like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the pirate on the tail of the aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's but, funny. Sorry, Jason. Well, that's it for another week of Airlines Confidential. My shout out this week goes to Bamboo Airlines of Vietnam, who have operated the first ever commercial nonstop service from Vietnam to the United States. They flew a flight from Hanoi to San Francisco and are saying that eventually they're going to serve the top three cities in Vietnam, Hanoi, Da Nang, and Ho Chi Minh City, to three big cities on the West Coast, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle. And I think that's just fantastic. They're using the 787. We've seen entry into nonstop service into China for a long time now to Singapore and adding Vietnam to that list is great. I'm sure in a couple of years, there's going to be many nonstop flights between Vietnam and the U.S., but this is a first and a really good one. Go Bamboo. Very cool. Uh, that's great to hear. And my shout out goes to the flight attendant crew on my flight on American Airlines 2393 last Thursday from Fresno to DFW. They had to deal with an in-flight medical emergency and some amazingly inconsiderate and idiotic passengers who were furious that they had to stay in their seats to allow the paramedics to board the flight upon arrival. One guy had tried to barrel past the flight attendants in mid-flight to try to pound on the cockpit door to complain. And then there was another guy yelling about being a retired Marine and he should be shown more respect, which I don't know what the hell that had to do with anything. Uh, but the flight attendant crew was calm and collected and put up with way too much crap uh, on that flight. And hopefully the sick passenger is feeling better. Thanks again to Vasu for joining us. Please come back and see us next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.